Welcome to Behind the News. My name is Doug Henwood. The usual two for today. We'll hear from the political scientist Jody Dean on the general political situation in this country in light of last week's elections. And then from Tobias Hubinet, a Swedish researcher on the politics of race in the paradigmatic social democracy. Last week's elections were a very mixed bag. Some of the most appalling features of American politics took a hit. Election deniers were mostly defeated, and some of Trump's favorite lunatics lost. Some barely, some decisively. At the same time, there was little inspiring about the results either. Some version of business as usual is preferable to business worse than usual, but the status quo is also fertile breeding ground for that worse, and with the right so well organized, we can be sure that the work of fertilization is going on undisturbed. Here to parse the situation is a frequent guest in Behind the News, Jody Dean. Jody is a professor of political science at Hobart and William Smith Colleges in Geneva, New York. Her books include The Communist Horizon and Comrade. She is the editor, along with Sherry's Burden Stelly, of a new collection published by Verso, Organize, Fight, Win, Black Communist Women's Political Writing. Jody Dean. So, Jody, we have, I have, I can't speak for you, mixed feelings about the election results the other day. I was very glad that uh, the crazy election deniers uh, lost. Uh, the crypto fascists really didn't do very well, or not so crypto anymore. <laughs> I guess that's a loaded word now. Uh, and... <laughs> Some, you know, half-decent Democrats won, but Democrats are not going to save us. So <laughs> how do you come off last week's election feeling? I feel like in a weird sort of void, to be really honest, like a kind of strange limbo of um, nothing really changed. It seemed like it was going to be worse and then it wasn't. And um For so long, it seemed like everything's always just been getting worse and getting worse. And this time, the worst didn't happen, but it also wasn't phenomenally awesome either. So the Greek word for civil strife is stasis or stasis. You know, it's also a word for stagnation and immobility. I came away with the sense of the sense of stasis is not like really that the Democrats won or did great or the Republicans did awfully, but we're just still in this same kind of position of a kind of semi-civil war, semi-stasis, semi-stagnant, in limbo for a while. Yeah, if we go travel back to 2016, uh, a lot of us got pretty excited about the Bernie uh, phenomenon. There's something of a relapse of that in 2020, but it's hard for people left of center to get very excited about anything at this point. Some of the New York State local politics, New York City local politics is not terrible, but no grand vision, no grand excitement. And that feeling that something was breaking in a positive direction now seems like a memory. Did, did you feel that way or am I putting words in your mouth? Just back on the current election for New York State, because of the um, the new gerrymandered districts, that gave the Republicans um, strength that they wouldn't have had. To me, like this makes it hard to focus just on immediate elections, but thinking like, doggone, the right has really been winning the long-term institutional game. Well, and that was Cuomo's doing, mostly. Yeah, yeah, yeah. But I it's mean, the, his, I mean, his judges, his, fault, his, sure. uh, his party chair, yeah. Yeah, his uh, party so he, chair, his judges, his fault. But who's winning that game, right? The winners, the yeah. outcome of that game is definitely um, the right. Actually, I would say, and where's the right? It's within the Democratic Party, as well as um, within the Republican Party. So it's like this getting outmaneuvered by the right across the board that I that I think we need to to think about rather than sort of immediate outcomes here or there. Why do you think that's happening? I think it's been happening because one, because forces on the right decided to play a long-term institutional game. And I'm thinking in part about like the Federalist Society, and then they were able to get major kinds of corporate backing. And so this long, long game of fighting in the institutions is not a game that the far left has played. If we don't take over the institutions, our enemies will. And that seems like a major problem. And it's not one that can be solved easily, right? Like with with respect to these gerrymandered districts, that takes like 10 years, right? Until the next next census comes around. 
I think that it's not like an immediate term set of issues like this happened for immediate reasons. I think it's the long term fruitful nature of this right wing strategy, like the same thing with the courts and particularly the Supreme Court. Right. These are the fruits of a long term strategy. Yeah, I know someone who uh, talked to Charles Koch in the mid-1970s who said, this is a struggle of 40 years. Uh, <laughs> I don't know of anybody on the left who thinks on that timescale. No, I don't think we do. And um, and then the, the sort of questions of that are why. Is it because of the defeat of you know, socialist and communist parties in the United States with the result of the long thrust of McCarthyism and then the um, defeat of the Soviet Union? Is it because of a left that became enamored of lifestyle-oriented individual kinds of freedoms? Like, you know, I'm thinking, you mentioned the, someone in the 70s talking about the 40-year game. The 70s, I think, was also called the me decade. And that was where the kind of liberals and you know, parts of the left were about this, this nice kinds of you know, everyday freedom rather than a long-term securing of capacities. So is it that? Is it the defeat of our unions that has been a long haul? However we diagnose it, it doesn't mean that the answer is not, God, we have to, we've got to win institutional battles. We have to fight institutional battles. We can't just give it up and retreat and be autonomous or something. Several questions come to mind now. Um, one is, they got money. Oh, and that makes a big difference, right? Is there any way we can counter that? We have the numbers. If you take it for, as a kind of given that the majority of people do not want to have to pay half to three quarters of their income in rent, if you take it as a given that the majority of people don't want their kids to have to go into enormous amounts of debt to go to college, if you take it for granted that the majority of people do not want to lose um, their houses if they get sick and have medical bills. So we kind of take some things for granted about a kind of decent set of expectations for an okay standard of life, then the majority of people should be willing to back a general left social agenda. We have the numbers on our side. It's not like the majority of people said, hey, would you like a billionaire to have everything? And you get like a tiny little bit. No one's going to say yes. So we've got the numbers, but it's harder to organize people than it is money, I think. And so that's where the problem is, is like how hard it is to try to organize people. It's not like the internet does it. You, pro you probably remember because you were writing about this stuff in the 90s and early 2000s. People thought the internet was going to be the solution to everything. That was going to be the solution to all political problems. Like we'll have town halls for millions and a brand new democracy. And it's actually been the opposite. We have numbers of people on our side, but they have to be organized. They have to be convinced. They have to be brought out. And that's the challenge. The broad population seems so beaten down in expectations. Um, you know, you say list all the things that people don't want to pay all their money in rent. They don't want to go deep into hawk to go to college, all those sorts of things, which I, I presume is true, but they, a vast majority of people seem to think there's nothing to be done about it. It's just life. I kind of blame us on that, right? I kind of blame the organizers for giving up because it's hard. Let's, let's use an example. Like you and I both live in New York state. You live in the city and I live way up in the Finger Lakes and in New York State, it's been really hard since the Dobb decision to get people out on the streets involved in abortion politics. People like haven't really felt it yet outside of New York State, um, in the different, you know, five different states that w had um, ballot initiatives up, um, abortion politics won. And so that's really exciting, right? So there are places um, where people are willing to go out, where they're doing the work, where they're you know, excited. We shouldn't overgeneralize about the beaten down part. Another issue, I mentioned Charles Koch's attitude, you know, 40 years plan. Um, you mentioned Leonard Leo and the Federal Society. These guys are not afraid to use what a lot of people on the left would consider to be authoritarian or top-down or hierarchical techniques. Uh, they are not afraid to direct things from a top uh, and uh, hope that their, um, their minions fall into line. We have all these ideas about things bubbling up from the grassroots and uh, are often skeptical about the importance of leadership and even an agenda. We still have that, that hangover from the old days where like, agendas and organizations and hierarchies are oppressive. It's so funny. It seems like that is such a reflex just throughout the left. But yet, when any of us go to a meeting that has 
no agenda and as in like like nobody knows how to run the meeting and nobody knows how to organize the topics for the meeting or how to say sum up what the meeting has accomplished and have action items for going forward then everybody's also miserable so it's really kind of it's kind of wild how we criticize the very methods that we know we actually need to do anything you mentioned the institutions and a lot of people on the left are also skeptical of some people on the left are skeptical of institutions in general, but some are specifically skeptical of the institutions of our bourgeois society and don't want any part of it. You know, think that uh, getting in, into Congress or state legislatures gets you dirty, leads you to compromise, uh, leads you to be a sellout. Whereas people on the right are, are very happy to move into those institutions and try to take them over. Unwillingness to compromise means an unwillingness to be involved in politics. The left has been so engulfed in a moralism that's not political and that doesn't, that's not conducive to political thinking that it's really hurt us. It's hurt our ability to have decent strategy. You know, I hate to, I hate to cite a Nazi, but I will. Carl Schmitt, you know, the famous um, Nazi um, legal theorist and theorist of sovereignty. You're the second leftist friend to tout Carl Schmidt to me in like the last three months. So <laughs> it seems to be a developing trend. I need to check this dude out. Yeah. Carl Schmidt's amazing. And um, the one of the most important things that he um, talked about was liberalism as eviscerating the space of the political in favor of ethics and economics. So liberalism gets rid of politics and instead has ethics and economics. And I think that's a problem for our contemporary left, in that the contemporary left only thinks ethically and then leads, lets the rest of it, right, the, the system run on the economics about it. But what do you mean by the economics there? I've seen a certain reluctance to talk about economic nitty gritty among people on the left um, and a lot of moralizing. Let me go back on Schmidt. So Schmidt says liberalism gets rid of, of the political and just have ethics and economics. So he really means that liberal policy is about either making ethical judgments or just making the economy run. What I'm drawing out for our that our contemporary faux left remains on the side of ethics and then leads the set, the set of economics to just kind of run on its own. We don't politicize the economy in the good old fashioned Marxist way that we should be. Like we're not, we don't organize economically in the way we should be. We might do something like mutual aid or something like that, but that's an ethics. That's not really an economics. And when folks go in these anarchistic directions, they disavow the institutional functioning of the economy. Labor unions don't do this, right? But unions have become really, really small on our part in the United States. We think about what the Democratic Party does. when, For the most part, when the Democratic Party for the last 20 or 30 years has made economic policy, it's done it in a kind of moralizing way with lots of tiny little distinctions. Like I'm thinking about Hillary Clinton wanting college students to have skin in the game. And so wanting to have all these different complicated means testing. The same thing with all the different ways that forms of temporary assistance to needy families relies on various kinds of moral judgments about people's ways of living. You know, is there a male breadwinner at home? All these different um, explicitly moralizing approaches to an economic matter. What's missing in all of this is this space of political struggle where you have a side and you fight it out. And the left has given up political struggle and I don't mean the whole left, right? There's, you know, there's there's some of us who who do this, but for the most part, the overarching view of the left is one where there is what matters the most is a moral judgment: is somebody a good guy or a bad guy? People approach, say, questions of the electorate in terms of their identities, in terms of a, a an assumption of their pre-existing likelihood to vote in a particular way, rather than in terms of we've got to persuade them to change their mind and vote for us. We have to organize them. So the issue I'm trying to kind of bring up here is this, this loss of a strong sense of politics, where politics involves making deals, making compromise, reaching out to people, convincing them to join your side rather than assuming that they already are there. Yeah, I'm thinking of the contrast between the way the Democrats ran Al Franken out of town for very hard to specify offense, um, whereas their uh, right is willing to vote for Herschel Walker, even though he violates every moral norm they profess to hold, because he will vote their way. He will do their bidding. Yes. I mean, so they're making this yeah. political judgment. 
Oh, absolutely. I think that's a really great, um, a really great example. Yeah, 100%. It, it doesn't matter how bad or hypocritical or contradictory Herschel Walker is. And it was the same with Trump, right? It didn't matter um, what he said or did as long as he was voting the way that they wanted. I'm speaking with the political scientist, Jody Dean. But then the critics on the left, liberal, I guess more than communist, but you know, still critics on the left, will uh, focus on the hypocrisy as if uh, that is somehow a fatal flaw, whereas uh, <laughs> I guess we should really be willing to overlook that in the name of power. Yeah, I think so. You know, as soon as I say this, I kind of recognize that this starts to get really, you know, really tricky. Like we remember, you remember in um, left-wing communism, Lenin was saying, go where the black hundreds are, which were the fascist. You reach the people wherever they are and don't be afraid to go in there. Now, that wasn't the same thing as saying you compromise with them or, you know, you know give them money or support their rallies. But he was saying you go in there. And I think that's one of the big challenges that we face. I mean, I start to wonder, too, is like, in some ways, are these problems that we're talking about, like symptoms of the way that the left is become the political orientation of the professional managerial class, right, is what we're talking about is sort of symptom of the disconnect of left politics from working class issues. And I know there's a, a bunch of people who think that I'm not 100% sure that's true. But I did want to bring it up for us to think about like, yeah, I mean, it seems like there are there are more and more people who are recognizing the limits of the um, the kind of economy that we have right now. I mean, we've got this gross inflation, we've got these massive layoffs that are starting to go throughout the tech sector. We have more and more people in the service sector economy. I'm thinking primarily of like these kind of home health care aids and caring aids. That doesn't seem like a problem specifically of the professional managerial class. But yet there's another way to think, but there is a way to think about these kinds of problems on the left as a problem because so many of us who talk about these things aren't exactly, you know, we're not coal miners. We're not exactly um, in the old working class. Yeah, the coal miners are almost gone. Yep. But Gabriel Wynant wrote helpfully about uh, the PMC and saying that, uh, you know, it's really bifurcating. Um, the, certainly the upper half of it or upper third of it is doing quite well and is, you know, the junior partner of the capitalists. But uh, you know, at, the, at the lower end, you got people with college degrees who are working low wages, deep uh, in debt, extremely insecure, no health benefits or anything like that. So, you know, the, the, the PMC epithet can um, obscure as much as it reveals. Yeah, that seems really helpful and right, Doug. I think that also really reminds us that these kinds of issues around debt, around um, being able to pay the bills, around rent, these kinds of the cost of living a decent life, that these issues aren't just kind of the issues of the petite bourgeoisie or the PMC. These are real issues of the working class now and the working class in a society where work is not as focused in the industrial sector. It's spread out in multiple sectors um, in ways that you know, it wouldn't have been 100 years ago. And uh, just to develop a theme we've been talking about privately, our attitude towards liberal society. You know, we'd be happy to see that uh, elections, uh, at least uh, <laughs> as as they are conducted in the United States, but at least they seem to be protected against the gross interference of, of the far right. And, you know, freedom of speech, uh, all those sorts of liberal freedoms, also um, proceduralism, some degree of independence, the civil service, which was under tr attack by Trump and his types. We feel a necessity to defend those things, but these are not the path to the society that we want to live in in the long term. So, how do we think about um, these institutions of liberal society? And defending them seems necessary, but on the other hand, limiting. Yeah, um, as you um, mentioned, you know, we've been worrying, we've been talking about this, and um, I've been worrying about this as well. And I think I want to land on, or well, I'll try this out and see what you think. Is maybe we shouldn't just call these the achievements of liberal society and liberal democracy. But recognize that calling the achievements decades of working class struggle and decades of popular democratic struggle liberal kind of gives too much to the bourgeoisie. I'm saying that as a way to, to say that the Democratic Party in the last 30 or 40 years has not been the party that has defended and saved basic crucial rights. It's been the party that 
the people's struggles have forced to do various things. Uh, I'm primarily thinking right now of abortion, but I'm also thinking of the kind of evisceration of the Voting Rights Act, thinking of the upcoming slew of cases. The one that was went badly last year around guns uh, earlier this year in New York State, and then one of the environmental cases. And we've got other cases around um, affirmative action, Harvard and some other university case. So the Democratic Party in power has not put forward guarantees of these rights that we thought had been achieved 30, 40 years ago. It's actually just been people's struggles that got the rights there and that get them enforced when we struggle for them. Maybe the kind of the way out of the dilemma we're having is not think that this means that we're what we're defending is liberalism. It's more what we're defending are the conditions of possibility for socialism. And that doesn't mean we think we're going to get socialism democratically, but it does let us recognize that the more authoritarian the society is, the worse it is for any kind of socialist struggle, or the more free that the sort of extreme sectors of the capitalist class and the extreme sectors of the far right and the extreme sort of lawless billionaires are, the more free they are, the worse off the rest of us are. The democratic struggle has been let down by the bourgeoisie. Um, the democratic struggle has actually been furthered the most by working class struggle, by the struggles, you know, by the historical struggles of the oppressed. What do you think of that as a way through? Well, that's very helpful, I think. And I, I was going to add that uh, the right, as they often do, seems to see this, these issues more clearly than the people left of center. Um, they understand that suppressing elections and suppressing particular voters <laughs> that they don't like are, are very important uh, for their route to power. And uh, people on the left, you know, I'm thinking more of official liberals, Democrats, professional Democrats, this sort of thing, have been very weak in defending those things. But you know, the right seems to understand the stakes better than they do. Yeah, I think that's a really great point. I've, I've been a little slightly frustrated with some friends and comrades on the left who make a, a kind of statement about not voting. It's one thing to say that every vote depends and our whole life depends on this next election, right? Which is the, the kind of democratic- It's always the party. most important election ever, right? Oh, exactly, right? It's just like, I've lived through you know, 40, 50 of the most important elections of our lifetime. Like, come on. But then to go fairly the other way and say, you know, I don't vote, voting is stupid seems to be like, you know, it's, I don't know, it's, it is throwing out the baby with the bathwater. That's what, if, if we don't vote, then our enemies win. Like just because we didn't vote. It's wrong to completely discard these institutions as long as we live in a political society where political power is distributed via these institutions, right? We've got, it's just another terrain that we need to fight on and recognize the utility of fighting on these terrains. Like, as long as we're in a society where we have elections and a Senate and a Congress, then we need to make sure that we're voting in them. This semester, Doug, I am. Um, I taught um, W.B. Du Bois' Black Reconstruction in America. Oh, yes. We've been reading it in my DSA reading group. Fabulous book. It's so fabulous. It's so brilliant. And what's just amazing all the way through is how he keeps emphasizing how the basic rights that are going to be you know, kind of codified in the 13th, 14th, and 15th Amendments are important for Black people and for poor white people and for the entire working class in the country. Like, I just find this emphasis on these voting rights and suffrage rights and sort of citizenship rights of black people as necessary for the entire working class as absolutely compelling and as a way of thinking about democratic rights that the left um, can use. And we can use in a way that doesn't make us the junior partner of the Democratic Party, but as a political sector with our own analysis of the importance of these rights for our struggles and for the struggles that we want to win. Yeah, I mean, it's amazing to to read that book um, and think of, like, for example, the January 6th riot, who oh, this is unprecedented, when in fact, uh, you know, the Southern elites and their Northern allies did all they could to fight Reconstruction by precisely those sorts of maneuvers, uh, terrorizing voters, trying to overturn elections. They had a pretty clear-eyed view of what to do, and they did it, and uh, it seemed like the January 6th gang understood that as well, but I'm not sure people really understand that history in the U.S., I don't know how closely you've been following um, some of these upcoming cases, 
there's a case coming before the Supreme Court called, um, called Moore v. Harper. And I think it's um, coming out of North Carolina. And basically, it, it turns on the independent state legislature theory. So it's this complicated voting rights case, but it boils down to whether or not state legislatures have the sole power to determine elections. And what's so weird is this had been a really obscure theory, but yet four Supreme Court justices agreed to hear the case. And these four Supreme Court justices who agreed to hear the case actually had independently in various contexts said that they um, it were actually supporters of this. So, I mean, supporters of the independent state legislature theory. This would allow the legislature to overrule a popular vote. Exactly right. Exactly right. And the different, the kind of groups that are behind this are, of course, one of these Claremont groups where, um, what is his name? John, um, he was one of these Trump people from Claremont Institute. He begins with an E, John. Oh, John Eastman. Eastman. John Eastman. Yeah, he's written a really long brief on this. A group with some former Trump people have written a long amicus brief on this. Leonard Leo's group has another amicus brief on this. So it's a really it's a crazy case. And it's before the Supreme Court, but this could actually have dire consequences for elections. And the reason I'm bringing this up is because like what we were saying with Du Bois, right? The Southern whites were throwing everything they could against elections, right? To sort of decrease suffrage, to prevent black people from voting, actually to also prevent poor white people from voting. And now we've got the same thing going on at multiple layers of the U.S. political system. But it's almost like the left is too... I don't know, they're disconnected or disenchanted to kind of pay attention to these institutions where the struggle is unfolding. I believe Scalia once said that there's, uh, and I think this is correct, view of the Constitution, there's no constitutionally mandated right to vote for president. And so the state legislature theory would, I think, be um, compatible with the Constitution as it's written. Oh, my God. <laughs> this, this is even worse than I thought. I know. It's dark. Um, because, you know, the Electoral College really is the, the electorate uh, for president. Um, and by historical convention, they follow the popular vote. If the state legislatures get their way, then uh, it would make the Electoral College look democratic. Oh, God. It, this also suggests to me, like, why it's important for us on the left to have our a kind of strong, independent line so that when we are trying to defend things, let's say, like, like one person, one vote, or trying to defend a basic idea of democratic participation, that it's not the same thing as saying, and so give money to the Democratic Party, and so support this particular Democratic Party elected official or something like that. I think it's got to be something more so that it's a kind of a critical socialist approach to democracy and democratic institutions. And that that is something worth fighting for, because it's also part of our larger struggle against capitalism. Finally, you know, you see these right wingers uh, talk about the Democrats being communists, and you know, the socialists and the collectivists are on the march. And uh, you know, it seems comical when you compare what they say to the actually existing Democratic Party. But uh, I don't know. I wish we could live up to their fears. Oh, um, I really do too. I, um, there was something I was reading recently from um, one of these conservatives, Yoram Hazoni, in this book, um, Conservatism, A Rediscovery. And it's one of these national conservatism books and a def- you know, defense of this new idea of national conservatism. And he has an absolutely terrible chapter on Marx and Marxism. And it's almost like you know the only thing he's read is maybe you know the Cliff Notes version of the Communist Manifesto, um, and what he does is, is turn the entire Democratic Party into communist, and everybody everybody's a communist. But he gives a reason that finally made sense, which is, well, and and he does this without mentioning class or without mentioning capitalism or without mentioning, you know, the economy or anything like that. So he turns everyone into a communist, you know, who's somewhat left of center. But he does on these grounds. He's like, like communists, they're against oppression and on the side of the oppressed. Now, I don't know who can make being against oppression a problem, but this guy did. He made being on the side of the oppressed the thing that he was critical of. And so the kind of wild point about the right wing attack 
on liberals and leftists as being on the side of us on the oppressed is it lets us know who they are. They're folks who are in favor of a hierarchical system that is anchored in the oppression of some and the privilege of others. They let us know that they're people who are against equal freedom, against something as seemingly banal as equal rights, and in favor of the capacity of some to exploit others, the capacity of some to rule over others, the capacity of a small group to determine the futures of the majority. And so in some ways, I think um, it's actually good to know that our enemy sees a great big bunch of leftists and liberals together, because then maybe we could actually see ourselves as on the side, you know, as all on the same side and actually be willing to fight for that side. Yeah. One thing I'm grateful to this new generation of national conservatives for is that they really say these things out loud. Oh, it's, it's, it's wild, huh? It's really crazy. Like, it's like, you, they don't have to, we, that old analysis of dog whistles, you don't even need that anymore. Now they're not just whistling for the dog. They're just straight up there. That was Jody Dean, professor of political science at Hobart and William Smith Colleges in Geneva, New York. She's got many books to her name, the most recent being a collection she co-edited with Sharice Burden-Stelly, Organized Fight Win, Black Communist Women's Political Writing, published last month by Verso. You're listening to Behind the News on Jacobin Radio. My name is Doug Henwood, back after a musical break. of Autology by Bergsonist, a musician originally from Morocco, now based in Brooklyn, from her 2020 album Middle West. West is spelled in the French manner. Next, how problematic are immigration and race for social democracy? The question presents itself because of a rise in recent years of anti-immigrant parties in the Scandinavian social democracies, like the People's Party in Denmark and, more recently, the Sweden Democrats, who hold an important place in the new right-wing government in that country. Why? To explore these issues, we're joined by Tobias Hubinet. Hubinet, who describes himself as an anti-racist researcher and activist, who teaches at Karlstad University, was born in Korea and grew up in Sweden with adoptive parents. He is the organizer of a network for the study of racial issues in the country and has done research on the experience of foreign-born adoptees and also anti-African racism there. He came to my attention because of an article he wrote in Boston Review on the long relationship of whiteness to social democracy in Sweden and the disruptive effects of large-scale immigration on the country's politics. I recorded this interview almost three weeks ago, but sat on it because it made me very uncomfortable. Right-wingers have long argued that collectivist politics work best in homogenous countries and therefore could never work in a place as diverse as the U.S., I never wanted to believe that because I like to think we can overcome prejudices against the unfamiliar and different. I overcame my reticence on broadcasting this because I think we need to talk openly about these things, ignoring race in the hope that it will just go away, as some class-only types in the left seem to think just won't work. We need to take it on directly, and to do so, we have to understand the phenomenon. Tobias Hubinet. Who are the Sweden Democrats? Uh, Where did they come from, and what is their role in government? Yeah, so the Sweden Democrats is a party that was founded in 1988, However, there's a predecessor, which was called Keep Sweden Swedish, which was founded in 1979. 
And it's generally seen as the origin of the Sweden Democrats. And this party was for many, many years an extremely small party, which didn't gain not even 1% of the votes in the parliamentary elections. But since 2010, when the party entered the parliament for the first time, it has increased exponentially. And since the 11th of September this year, when the latest Swedish election took place, it is the second biggest political party in the Swedish parliament, and it is the supporting party of the new current right-wing government. What is their program? What do they stand for? And um, do they have a Nazi pass? Is this something we should be concerned about? Yeah, absolutely. So uh, what uh, makes the Sweden Democrats different from practically all the other European parties of a similar political program, basically? Usually they are called right-wing populist parties or far-right parties. Among them, the Sweden Democrats is uh, uh, unique in the sense that it's the only party which has been able to achieve this huge popular support, which has a, a national socialist or Nazi origin. And that makes the, the party uh, different for, from all the other parties. And when it comes to the political program, the main red thread ever since the party was founded has always been to, by all means, trying to diminish the proportion of people in Sweden deriving from outside of Europe and who have arrived into Sweden on an asylum status. And that is basically non-white and usually also non-Christian people. Did they play on the crime, the fear of crime and social decay? Was that uh, part of their um, political appeal? Yeah, very much so. And especially during this election campaign, which has been seen by political scientists as the one where the issue of crime and security and so on has been at the forefront probably the most during all election campaigns uh, in Sweden. So that was really in the focus. And that is probably the reason why the Sweden Democrats ended up as being the second biggest party of Sweden. Is there actually a crime problem in Sweden or are they just really exaggerating it for a political advantage? There is, in the sense that uh, we have proportionally probably more shootings and also bombings than most other European countries per head, statistically speaking. And those uh, spectacular crime events are, of course, making a, a lot of headlines in Swedish media and also in European and probably Western media in general nowadays. There is a crime problem in that sense. Well, you know, we certainly have something like that in New York City and much of the rest of the U.S., and we don't really have any great explanation for what's going on. Well, what, how do you explain what's going on in Sweden? The not just main, but sole explanation coming from the Sweden Democrats is that this is only because of non-European, non-Western, non-white and non-Christian immigration, while others, people who are in the academia, criminologists, sociologists, etc., they would uh, add that uh, it is much more complicated than that and that uh, it is mainly to do with social marginalization among certain segments, mainly actually children of immigrants. Not just Im no, It's not mainly the immigrants themselves. It's the so-called second generation. Are they heavily discriminated against in Sweden? Yeah, I would say they are, especially if, if they live in certain neighborhoods. If you come from such areas, and there are quite many nowadays in Sweden, in, the, in urban Sweden, you get stigmatized. On top of that also, bear a name that is deriving, let's say, from the Middle East or Sub-Saharan Africa or certain parts of Asia or even Latin America, it makes things even worse for you. A lot of former Social Democratic voters voted for the Sweden Democrats. Um, why? The electorate of the Sweden Democrats is uh, characterized by a, a, a heavy dominance of people coming from the working class. And I'm speaking about the white Swedish working class now mainly. Previously, most of them voted for the Social Democrats, which once was uh, actually the most powerful socialist workers' party all over the West, probably, for decades in a row, ruling Sweden during most of the last century. Those voters have gradually left the Social Democrats and went over to the Sweden Democrats. And there are many reasons for that. And one is, to mention one that is maybe the most striking, that the Sweden Democrats have been able to portray themselves as the new workers' party, basically, the new party for ordinary white Swedish people, so to speak. And that has been very successful. In the US, a lot of the appeal of the right to working class white voters, possibly this is exaggerated, but uh, there is something there, um, is uh, a resentment of cultural elites, of anti-cosmopolitanism. Um, is that true in Sweden? 
yeah, that that is true here as well. So there's also a strong anti-establishment sentiment among the voters who have left the Social Democrats and went to the Sweden Democrats when, it, when we speak about the white Swedish working class voters. And on top of that, there is also this fear of globalization has done to the industry, for example, and uh, the end result of that. I mean, we are speaking about the Rust Belt in the US, right? And we have similar regions in Sweden as well nowadays. These people have some genuine complaints. Yes. And is the Social Democratic Party not addressing them? Are they seen as part of the problem? The problem with the Social Democrats, which historically usually had the electoral support about 40 to 50 percent of all voters in Sweden for decades in a row, is that uh, during the 1990s, when uh, the Cold War ended and when neoliberalism basically set in together with globalization, the Social Democrats in Sweden and elsewhere had this idea that there was only one way forward into the future, and that was to go for this neoliberal economics. And that hurt the party's own electorate deeply. There are economic reasons, basically, why so many workers have, have left the party. And today, the Social Democrats still, of course, sees itself as a, as a party for the Swedish working class, for the ordinary Swedes, and it's still a you know, socialist or social democratic party. However, many people would also say that the, the Social Democrats is not the party that it once was. It is more of a kind of a middle center-left party, perhaps. This is true across Europe, right? The uh, the social democratic parties have moved uh, in a very market-friendly direction. Although in Sweden, I guess the, the move is perhaps more extreme, given the former strength of the Swedish welfare state. Yeah, I would say so. Because the Swedish welfare state and the, the whole Swedish welfare system was once uh, the most advanced in the world. And that was, of course, the, the jewel in the crown of the, the social democrats. Uh, that, that was the party that had shaped and constructed this very special society. The dark side of that is that uh, that was constructed in a society that was like 99% white or more, mostly native Swedes. And as the population got more diverse, you argue that that undermines support for um, redistributionist politics. Uh, could you talk about the racial angle of this evolution? Yes, and that's the perhaps less known angle or aspect of the Swedish welfare state and the development of it. So when uh, the whole project started in the early 1930s, when the Social Democrats came to power for the first time and then stayed in power for, well, almost 70 years, depending on how you count. Sweden was extremely homogeneous at that time, and, and uh, it had just uh, recently been able to stop the huge immigration to, well, not the least the US, but also to other settler states overseas, such as Canada, Australia, Argentina, and so on. Because of this homogeneity, the Social Democrats were, uh, was able to argue that this particular demographic homogeneity was a prerequisite for such an advanced social welfare state, because otherwise the whole idea of re redistribution of, of quite high tax level, etc., etc., would be questioned. The Social Democrats uh, consciously tried to keep this homogeneity as long as possible. And this was very much about the racial homogeneity, because there were at that time immigrants from the other Nordic countries in Sweden, labor migrants from Finland and Norway and Denmark, and later on also continental Europe. But those people are, of course, they are Europeans, they are Christians, and they are considered white. Uh, so it was actually uh, only in the 1980s that the Swedish racial makeup changed. And then it changed um, quite rapidly, and not the least after the end of the Cold War, when uh, many states or state formations in, in the global south started to become so-called failed states. And uh, a lot of refugees from these countries the Horn of Africa, uh, uh, West Asia, Central uh, Asia, etc., and certain countries in Latin America had started to come to Sweden. And today, it is a very different picture. So from about 1% non-white population proportion in 1980, today it would be about 20%. And that is within 40 years, right? And so why would this undermine support for the welfare state? Don't these people need help? The argument goes that, uh, and, uh, and this is uh, uh, kind of an argument coming from, from political scientists and others who are studying the Swedish and other welfare states in, around Europe, that uh, a certain level of hom homogeneity is maybe or perhaps uh, actually needed for 
the maintenance of such a, an advanced and, to be honest, also expensive social welfare system. And when the demographic makeup changes and when people arrive in, in Sweden, as we are speaking about now, and when the, the native Swedes or the, the white majority Swedes, or at least certain segments of them, start to feel that these uh, refugee migrants, they are undeserving. They are not deserving the same rights when it comes to welfare services and, and so on. And that is what uh, the Sweden Democrats have been able to tap into and mobilize. I'm speaking with Tobias Hubenet, a senior lecturer at Karlstad University in Sweden. Yeah, but they also seem to have been able to tap into a uh, what you describe as a long history of white supremacy in Sweden, dating back at least as far as uh, Linnaeus. I guess uh, you call him Linnae in Swedish, uh, but I guess the rest of the world knows him as Linnaeus, uh, the founder yes. of you know, modern taxonomy. I did not know that he was a scientific racist, however. What, how does he, uh, his uh, intellectual heritage figure into this? Linnaeus is considered to be uh, among people who are working within the history of ideas, the founding father of so-called scientific racism in the sense that he was the one who invented the idea that there are four or five uh, main races among humankind, uh, more or less corresponding to a certain continent or a big region, and they can also be colored. So he colored Europeans as white, for example, and Africans as black, etc., etc., so his taxonomy of, of human races is still within uh, within us and among us, so to speak. And after him, there uh, there were other Swedish scientists and scholars who made uh, important contributions to the history of ideas of the concept of race and the idea of race, basically. And uh, this uh, culminated in the founding of uh, the first uh, state institute for race studies or race science, which was founded actually exactly 100 years ago in 1922 with the backing of all political parties in the Swedish parliament of that time. So this was uh, something that um, the Swedish state apparatus and, and the whole Swedish society basically agreed upon, that this was something both progressive and something that was seen as science, basically. And you say Swedish intellectuals and scholars believe they belong to a Nordic subgroup of the white race, which yes. is, I guess, even superior to the rest of the, the white yes. lot. Is that a pervasive belief in Sweden? No one speaks like this anymore. I mean, some people know know that this was the language that was used at that time, the idea of the Nordic white race being more supreme than other whites in Europe, and uh, etc. However, uh, the, the kind of feeling that you are a bit more superior than not just the rest of the world outside Europe or outside the West, uh, but even more uh, superior than the other Europeans and the other Westerners, that's a mentality that is still quite strong in Sweden, and which I think derives from this um, time period when it was about race. Now it's more perhaps about being so socially advanced, so progressive, etc., being more equal than other Western societies, which is still true. This kind of mentality is, of course, not always negative. It's And, and of course, there is validity also sometimes in, in it, but I think it derives from this idea that we are at least better than the others. Right-wingers in the U.S. have long argued that our society is too diverse and the welfare state would never work here. Uh, a lot of people on the left didn't believe that, argued against it, didn't want to hear it, hated the idea. Do you think this is a generalizable principle, that Swedish example is something that uh, <laughs> is something we should worry about uh, elsewhere? Yeah, I can see what you mean from an American standpoint. And uh, it's so difficult to generalize. It's difficult to say, but uh, given this uh, recent history that we just discussed about uh, the idea of race being such an institutionalized part of, of, of Swedishness and of Swedish self-identity only 100 years ago, and uh, given that uh, the Swedish welfare state became probably the most advanced, in, in the, at least in the democratic world, if we exclude the communist world during the Cold War, taking these two historical facts together according to my analysis, uh, explains quite a lot of the success of the Sweden Democrats. But it's, it is at the same time difficult to, to generalize about if that is transferable to such, to take the example of the US, for example. There are, of course, I mean, historically, as well as uh, contemporaneously, various and different ways of, of, of uh, accommodating diversity, right? So that would be my answer. 
And is there a way to fight this? I mean, it's really something I don't want to believe. I don't want to accept. Uh, you know, I think uh, internationalism and uh, fellow feeling among humans is something I cherish as a value. Uh, and I don't want to surrender to these impulses. Have you any thoughts of how to fight this? Yeah, well, I, I believe that. Uh, well, I have. Well, I'm, I'm open about this now. I'm, I come from a leftist background, uh, apart from being a, someone working within the Swedish academia. And uh, I think that uh, to speak openly about this, I think uh, the Swedish left, including the social democrats, have to counter the, the kind of idea of what Sweden is and what who is a Swede and what, who belongs to Swedishness or not. The kind of narrative that the Sweden democrats at the moment, at least, uh, has been able to, to turn into uh, mass support. Uh, in this recent election, even come to power, although as a supporting government party. But anyway, it is, in a way, in practice, a ruling party. The lesson to, to learn, I think, is to to, to be able to, to understand the, this history that we have been discussing now and, and to uh, redirect, um, maybe even updating the idea of who is a Swede or not. And what uh, and who will be benefiting from the welfare services that, that are still uh, there? It's not a, an easy project, of course. And um, um, to be honest, um, history is against us, right? Uh, but hopefully, the future is uh, on our side. Uh, and is anybody uh, in Swedish politics uh, fighting the Democrats in a way that you think might be fruitful? The opposition now, now, now. From from since the last election, the opposition consists of uh, the Social Democrats and uh, the former Communist Party, which is today called the Left Party, and the Green Party and Old Liberal Party, and and those four parties they are all grappling with this new reality, right? And and there's still a kind of a in a kind of a shock, I think, after the election result and this new government, which started to rule the country barely nine days ago or something. Uh, officially. I cannot see any of those four parties at the moment formulating what I am hoping for, but yeah, I, I hope they will be able to do the, this during the coming four years. That was Tobias Hubinet, a senior lecturer at Karlstad University in Sweden. I welcome comments, criticisms, and suggestions on this topic. That's it for me, Doug Henwood. Let's go out with this, some of the Internationale and Evocation of the World I Wish We Had, performed by Alistair Hewlett. Till next week, bye. Arise, you workers from your slumbers Arise, ye prisoners of want For reason and revolt now thunders And at last ends the age of Kant Away with all your superstition Servile masses, arise, arise We'll change henceforth the old tradition We'll spun the dust to win the prize Ah, so comrades, come rally And the last fight let us face The internationally Unites the human race Ah, so comrades, come rally And the last fight let us face The internationally Unites the human race